Please be seated. Well, I know in my own heart, and I'm sure in yours as well, that we have already worshipped. It's almost tempting to say, Amen, let's go home, because you enjoyed the singing, I enjoyed the reading of the Word of God, and just uh, this time to be together uh, with fellow saints and with our Lord. But we have been considering uh, the book of Ephesians, a wonderful epistle of the Apostle Paul. We have been, for the last uh, two or three weeks, two weeks at least, been focusing on that very important and interesting uh, part of Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. And I encourage you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 5. And we want to read these verses one more time. And our focus today will be primarily on verses 19, uh, 20, and 21. May we hear God's Word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it is our desire that God would bless His Word for His glory and our understanding. And may His people say, In Tozer, A.W. Tozer's classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy He makes the following comment. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. The most revealing thing about the church, and I might say a church, is her idea of God. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical practical Christian living as well. It is to worship, that is our right view of God, is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. Perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. In Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, Paul contrasts the life and the worship of the pagan or Gentile with those who, those Gentiles, those pagans who have perverted notions of God. He is contrasting their life and their worship uh, to the life and worship of the Christian. And there is quite a contrast as you look at chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 5, verse 18, 
Paul uses a glaring contrast to distinguish these two lifestyles in worship. In chapter 5, verse 18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, that's pagan, but be filled, uh, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, this is Christian. So he's making a very glaring contrast between two lifestyles, two concepts of God, two ways of worshiping, two approaches to God Himself. Now we noted that the word filled means such fullness that it influences every part of one's life and conduct. It claims the whole being. Pleireu. That's the word filled. And that's what it means. It, it has an influence on every part of your life. Your thinking, your living, your speaking, your, your listening. So to be filled means to be dominated. Let me give you a couple of other ways the word is used in the New Testament. In John 16, verse 6, we read that the apostles were filled with sorrow. It overwhelmed them. In Luke chapter 5, verse 26, when Jesus healed the paralytic, we're told that the people were filled with awe seeing this man that was lame healed in front of their eyes. They're filled with awe of Christ who is the one that healed him. In Luke chapter 6 verse 11, we're told that the Jews were filled with fury because Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day. And in Acts chapter 5 verse 3, Peter asked Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Now that's the use, the use of the word filled in some places. And you begin to see then how it means a permeation, a control, an influencing factor over a person. Well, pagan worship, as we've noted, was dominated by a loss of control, a giving up of one's mental faculties, their rationale, their thinking. And they just gave themselves over to sensuality, but they accentuated that by filling themselves with uh, drugs or wine or whatever it was that would, that would uh, cause their uh, whole being to be changed by. Let me quote again from John MacArthur. In the, in the ancient pagan religions, they believed that the way you communed with the deities was through losing control. It is total abandonment to all things sensual, total abandonment of all control to a substance that causes you to plunge deep into a stupor of unthinking, irresponsible evil. That they taught was how you worship. That's how you transcend the mundane. That's how you commune with the deities. In the 60's, Timothy Leary tried to sell that, saying that drugs induced an elevated state of consciousness in which you could commune with God. That's a very old belief. Yet it's very current. I had a conversation this past week with someone that 
believes that psychedelic drugs is a way to expand their horizon, that they may be in communion with all things around them. And so the idea of paganism is you just give over your control and you accentuate that by filling yourself with something that will cause you to be in an altered state. Now Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2. And this is that section where Paul deals with the the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting the way he begins that section. In verse number 2 he says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And sometimes that's the idea is, well, I'm led, I, I feel this, my emotions carried me in this direction. Well, Paul says, that's paganism. And that's how you used to worship. You just went however you felt that you were led. Peter gives insight to this. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For the time that is past, this, this is in your past life as a believer who was once before an unbeliever, he says to, to them, he says, For the time past, for the time that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter is describing paganism and what people came out of. But we contrast this, Paul contrasts this for us in Ephesians 5.18, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with this evil, this, this, this uh, totally giving yourself over to, to evil and debauchery. And wickedness. But in contrast to that, be under the influence, be filled by the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to suggest you can't do any of that that Paul just exhorts unless your mind and your heart are engaged in what you're doing. Now, we stated last week, this, and I, and I want to just briefly touch on this again, trying to explain somewhat that feeling of the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. We noted last week that the Holy Spirit lives in every believer. And that this feeling of Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and I really prefer preposition by instead of with, be filled by the Holy Spirit. Um, that this that, that is being spoken of is not an experience. Oh, I must go get this experience. We said, no, that's not what's happening here. In fact, I, I rather think that the Holy Spirit is, is the means, not the substance of the filling. He is the means. It is by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. I'm going to pursue this just a little bit. As Christ prepared His apostles for His departure by death, and we read about this, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, but Jesus promised His disciples, I will not leave you alone. 
And he promised them that he would send another comforter. John 14, verses 16 through 17, we read, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Listen. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Now that's the promise of Christ to His disciples. The Spirit dwells in you. He will be in you. We believe and teach, therefore, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And we also believe that the Holy Spirit is not given to just a few believers, but He lives in the heart, the mind, the being of every believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, we read, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now he's not talking about the way you're immersed or some mode of baptism. That's, what, that's not what he's speaking about. He's talking about it is by the presence of the Spirit that we all are baptized into one body. What body? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. Now this is describing every believer. And so it is by this one Spirit, Paul will address in Ephesians 4, when he talks about there's one Spirit, it is by this one Spirit, therefore there is one salvation. There's not different kinds of salvation for different kinds of people. There is one hope. I don't have a hope and another religion has another hope and another... Yes, they may have it, but there's only one hope. And it's through this baptism of this one Spirit, this being born into the family of God. There is but one faith. That is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not talking about whether I'm Arminian or Calvinist or whatever. That's not what He's talking about here. Even though we think that the Reformed faith is a better and more biblical representation of the faith, He's talking about the Christian faith. There's one faith. There's one baptism, Paul says in Ephesians 4. And again, that doesn't mean, well, if I'm, you're not baptized in this church, you're lost and going to hell forever because we didn't baptize you. Because we don't believe that. But, but that's not what that means. It's talking about every believer is the vessel of the Holy Spirit. Now, <clears throat> can a regenerated person become less regenerated? I sinned, and I, have, I know I sinned, and it's really been on my conscience. I must be less regenerated. Why not? Can a person baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit be less filled or baptized? That's a sovereign work of God. We, we looked at how the fact that we're passive in that. Yes. How, about it, how about justify? Can you get more justified or less justified? When you get to glory, will you be more justified? No. Why not? 
Because you have already been justified through the blood of Jesus Christ applied by the Holy Spirit in your life. You don't get more regenerated, more justified. You're adopted into the family of Christ. Can you get more adopted? No. You either are or you're not. It's not a matter, it's not a matter of measure or levels. It's a matter of is or is not. So what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> well, let me give you some things out of John. And I'm not saying this is exhaustive by any means. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is a ministry of, of um, instruction. John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. Sounds like Jeremiah 31 to me of the promise of the new covenant. That I will put my Spirit in you. You will be my people, and I will be my God, and you will know my commandments and follow them. So the Spirit, He, he says, I will send in my name, the Father will send, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is a ministry of instruction. And who is that instruction focused on? Himself? No. Christ. The example I've used here before and I'll use again now is if you go by a building at night and it's, it's lit up and it's a beautiful, beautiful building. It has all these floodlights down here and they're, they're highlighting this building. You don't go by and go, oh, look at the floodlights. You go, man, that building really stands out. Look at that architecture. It's, that's, a, that's a beautiful building. And what illuminates it is the light. But I'm not so captivated by the light but what the light is shining on. The Holy Spirit takes the things of Christ and shows them to us. It's Christ that is being exalted. We go on in the ministry of truth and power, John 16, verse 8. And when He comes, He's speaking about the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is a ministry of truth and of power and authority. There is a ministry, I've already said this in a way, but it, His is a ministry of knowledge and peace. John 14, which I've already read part of that, but the, at the end of that, after Christ says that the Spirit will bring all things to your remembrance, Christ says to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It is through the knowledge of Christ that one has peace. And Christ promised His abiding presence. John 17, verse 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. So question, why was it to the advantage of those disciples who were there in the room with Christ that looked at Him, that ate uh, the Lord's Supper with Him that touched Him, that handled Him, as John would say. How is it to their advantage that He goes away? Well, last Sunday afternoon, Pastor John, in our systematic theology study, taught on God as a Spirit. That was our focus. God is Spirit. And one of the associated truths of God's that God is spirit is God's omnipresence. Pastor John brought this out. One of the truths that go with that reality, God is spirit, 
is his omnipresence. And that sees everywhere. And Psalm 139, you know it, it's a lovely psalm. It means so much, my own thinking. But the psalmist said, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. All of us can, can recede into the deep recesses of our minds and hearts, and even the person that is most close or intimate with you, they can't go there. They can see pieces of it as you express it. But there's nowhere God is not. Even into my deepest thoughts and imaginations, even there, you, God, are there. Now, in the flesh, Christ is not omnipresent. Why did Thomas, in John chapter 21, verses 24 through 26, why did Thomas miss the appearance of the resurrected Lord as he came that night into that room where the disciples were? Why did Thomas not have that experience? Well, simply put, Thomas wasn't there. Yeah, but nor was he where Christ was because Christ was in the flesh and he was in one place in the flesh in that room. He wasn't with Thomas wherever he was. It is expedient for you that I go away. It's necessary. It's important to you, Christ told his disciples, that I go away. Where is the risen Lord today? Where is Christ now? All right. In the flesh, right? He's with the Father. But in Revelation 2.1, I read that the Lord Jesus Christ walks among the candlesticks. He walks among the churches. Wait a minute. He's in heaven. How's He doing this? Hmm. Can Christ be present simultaneously with us here at EBC and Tibbet and Lake Chapel. Hmm. Can Christ be present simultaneously with Sam Gunnett and TK in, in South Korea and us here at EBC? Can Christ be present with the church in, churches in Cuba and the Ukraine at the same time? How? He's in heaven physically. That's His location. In the body, He's there. Is Christ present in the elements of the Lord's Supper? How? We pray for the promised presence of the Lord to be with us when we meet. Do you save Him a seat? Go, nope, can't sit here. Saving this one. 
How do we expect Him to be here? Christ promises His church His presence in Matthew 28.20 until the end of the age. Well, is He going to go away at the end of the age? No, we're just going to be with Him in physical presence. But how is He going to be with us till the end of the age? Well, Christ is present by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the Holy Spirit, in fact, is called the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If the Spirit does not dwell in you, fill you, then you're not Christ. Galatians 4.6 And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of His Son, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, now, we're not saying that Christ and the Holy Spirit are the same. It's not, don't go out here thinking that. There are three persons in the Trinity, and they're not the same. So we're not saying that Christ and the Spirit are the same, and we're not saying that, that somehow Christ is present in all these different locations because we're in different time zones, and you know you can zip here and zap there. We're not saying that. But we're saying that the work of the Holy Spirit is the focus of focuses on Christ. And it's by the Holy Spirit that one has saving faith in Christ. It's by the Holy Spirit that one has knowledge and grows in Christ. It is by the, the presence of the Holy Spirit that one has peace of Christ. It is by the Holy Spirit that one has the wisdom of Christ. It's by the Holy Spirit that one has the power of Christ. And it's by the Holy Spirit that one communes and has fellowship with the triune God. Now, we've, we've, that, that's been in Ephesians for us. He, Paul has really brought these things out for us in Ephesians. The point here, and I do want to go on, but the point here is the Holy Spirit is a constant. I'm not. I ebb and flow. God doesn't. I'm not more redeemed or less redeemed or more justified or less justified or more adopted or less. I may feel like I am because of my sins, of, 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 of committing things or omitting things. I may feel less, but God isn't in flux. He's constant. So let's come now to our text. I hope that might have helped some. Maybe didn't stir the water up too bad and muddy it too much more. All right, let's go back to our text now. That it is that we're not to be drunk with wine, but be filled, and again, I'm going to say by the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Music is a wonderful, wonderful gift of our Creator and our Savior and our Lord. And it's also a very, very powerful medium. Very powerful. Music is used to embolden soldiers as they march into battle. If you've ever been to Gettysburg and looked across the field where you had pickets charge and you think of that last 
decisive battle and you stand over here where the Confederacy was and you can drive around and come over here where the Union was and you look at it and you go, there is no way. What were they thinking? I'm not talking about modern war, um, you know, warfare and, 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 and hardware, but what they had then, and you go, I could get behind that wall with a BB gun and do damage. You got all that distance in the open they're going to cross. You go, ah, but you know, men can be emboldened by music to march right into the teeth of the fire. Music can stir patriotism. When I hear our national anthem done right, it you know makes you want to stand up and put your hand on your heart. It's beautiful. It's hard to sing, but it's beautiful. Music can also be used to attack patriotism. Those of you in here, Carl, reckon it's you and me, brother, Michael, maybe. Uh, of the Vietnam era, men at least. We can remember back to all, a lot of the music that came from that time. We, you know, I liked a lot of it at one time, but a lot of it was anti-patriotic. Music can be used to whip up a fevered fervor of people. Just do it with the music. Certain beats, certain instrumentation. You can use that to just stir up into almost a frenzy. Music can be used, on the other hand, to calm the soul. What would Saul do when he was mad or had madness in him? He would call for David and David would come and he would play and sing the music and that would calm Saul in his madness. Martin Luther was a musician. He played the lute. And he was a lover of music and he understood the power of music. Listen to what he wrote. Next to the Word of God, music deserves the highest praise. Any who remain unaffected by music are clodhoppers indeed. <laughs> I know, I get tickled every time I read this. They're clodhoppers indeed and are fit to hear only the words of dumb poets and the music of pigs. I wonder what Luther thought about music. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, I always love music. Whoso has the skill in this art is of good temperament, fitted for all things. We must teach music in schools. A schoolmaster ought to have skills in music, or I would not regard him. Neither should we ordain young men. I'm sorry, Brother Tyler, have you studied music? Neither should we ordain young men as preachers unless they have been well exercised in music. Well, I do agree that we ought to know a thing or two about it. But uh, Now, all of that is, is Luther understands the power of it. And he, he wrote hymns. Of course, we love to sing it. I do. A mighty fortress is our God. Is that not a moving hymn? as you engage in singing a hymn. Eric Zwingli, on the other hand, another reformer, probably the best musician of the reformers, realized the power of music, and he took an opposite position than what Luther took. He believed that music was too powerful and too emotional to be used in worship. Therefore, they had no musical instrumentation and no singing in the church where Zwingli was. What they would do is they would 
have the congregation to read in uh, sort of a responsive reading uh, various scriptures. That, that took the place of music for them. In the New Testament, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. I'm going to back up here. Music and singing has been and is uh, today and it will continue to be a vital part of true worship. We have that in Wesley's hymn, but that seraph in vain tries to exalt God as he flies around and singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Remembering the hymn of Wesley, how that firstborn seraph, before there's anything, there's God. There's nothing. And then God creates. And we know the seraphs fly with wings covering their feet and two wings covering their eyes and with two wings they're flying and they're crying out day and night, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Creation, when God made creation, there's the music of birds and brooks and the wind. They all have a song. God apparently loves music. It's all around us. And it fills the worship of God. It filled it in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 4.21, we read about Jubal. And who is Jubal? Jubal is the father of all who play harps and flute. In Exodus 15, we read in the first 18 verses the song of Moses. And then following that, we had the song of Miriam as they sang it with tambourines. In 1 Chronicles 16, the Levites are put in charge uh, of the service of song. And the Psalms are full of exhortations to praise God with instruments and song. And in fact, we would say that the absence of music among the people of God has been indicative of great distress and sorrow. And we have that in Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, after they're captured and taken away, and they're under the oppression of a foreign nation, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres, their instruments of music. For there our captors required of us songs. They wanted them to sing. You're a merry people. They required of us song and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they responded, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And there their harps hung. Music in the New Testament and singing in the New Testament is recorded for us. We have the Song of Mary. We have the, the Benedictus of Zechariah and the, the Nativity uh, stories. At the close of the Lord's Prayer, as they went out to the Mount of Olives, what did they do? They sang a hymn as they went out to the Mount of Olives. We have fragments of hymns in our, in our Bibles. Just to mention a couple, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, dealing with the immortal, invisible, almighty God. And of course, we have a hymn taken from that. 
Philippians, on that great Christological statement, that's, that's thought to be a hymn. Even right here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is thought to be part of one of the early Christian hymns. And on and on it goes. But worship will not, excuse me, music, singing will not stop when the world's done and we're into glory, the new heavens and new earth. In Revelation 18, 22, the music stops. It reminded me recently of the um, uh, president, where was he from, that was visiting over here. I uh, can't think where he was from. He's an Asian. But anyhow, he, uh, he did a little rendition of The Day the Music Died. And that's a song. Big pardon? South Korea. South Korea. Thank you. He's South Korean president. And if you don't know that song, that's another one of, of our day. But bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my levy, Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Anyhow, that's the day the music died in the song. Well, music dies in, in Revelation 18. And it's the music of the world, of Babylon. And you read about that in Revelation 18.22. The music of the world stops, but coming with that in Revelation 19, the eternal music and hymn of glory burst forth. Revelation 19.6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And so on the death of one music, bursting out is the eternal hymn of another song. In our text, and I know I must get there, in our text we gain insight to the simple worship of the early church. And it wasn't all that different from what we do, I don't think. Now, looking at our verses, they're composed of closely linked couplets. And these couplets have both vertical and horizontal uh, dimensions or elements or aspects to them. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns. Who are you addressing? One another. Horizontal. May, uh, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Who are you addressing? God. There's your vertical. Horizontal and vertical. Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where is that focus? Where's the focus? God, vertical. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Where's the focus? Horizontal. So I've got two couplets here. In both these couplets, I have a vertical and horizontal element to these couplets as we begin to, to uh, consider what the Apostle is saying. The text explains for us the nature and the focus of worship. And the nature and focus of worship is that it is to be edifying to fellow saints and it is to be exalting to God. Here's my horizontal and my vertical. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why? I'm addressing you. You're addressing me. What's that? What's that about? That's the build up. That's the edification. And not only that, we're singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. What's, what's that goal? 
the exaltation of God. So I've got two things in mind. Edifying you and you me and exalting together our God. Now, that means a couple of observations we might draw from that. That true worship is for believers. It's not for unbelievers. Well, they can be a guest, but it's not for them. Unbelievers do not worship our God. They do not believe and have faith in our Christ. Worship is not for them. That's paganism. Christian worship is for believers. Now that, if you, if you start thinking and understand that, then, then you understand how that impacts every aspect and element in worship. To whom am I appealing? The world? No. I want to edify and I want to exalt. Do I want the unbeliever to be saved? Of course I do. But that's not the focus. That, that helps you understand then the focus of a message, feed, build up. Helps you understand the focus of the, the whole tenor of the worship. Who's it for? What's it about? The songs you sing? The scriptures that are read? All of that comes it's flowing from this. Now singing, and also I can take from what I've read to you and pointed out the vertical and the horizontal, singing is not a performance. Music is not a performance. But it is an aspect of corporate worship. Sometimes singing is thought of as the worship. We're going to have the, the praise and worship service. As opposed to what? I thought the whole thing was praise and worship service. In fact, we try to make a point in, in the way we even order our service here. We don't always say it, but it's implied before we begin our worship, we're going to make these announcements, we're going to do this and that. Now we're going to call ourselves to quietness, and, and then we're going to have a call to, call to worship. Now we're, we're, we're engaging in worship. And then from everything, prayers, hymns, scripture reading, catechisms, Preaching, all of that comes under that umbrella of praise and worship because that's what we're doing. And it has two goals. To edify fellow believers and to exalt God. So we sing to one another. We sing to other believers. And we do that to edify. And so music is a mutual ministry among believers. Singing is corporate. It's for and by the body. Do I mean by that there can't ever be uh, a quartet or a trio? No, I'm not trying to say that. But by and large, I, it is for us to sing to one another. It's not for entertainment. It's not for evangelism. One of the great rediscoveries of the Reformation were hymns and hymn singing. We know that we got the Scripture in our own language from, from the Reformation, but we got hymn singing again from the Reformation. It had been lost. It had been put underfoot by the Catholic Church for a thousand years or more. You had appointed 
choirs, you had the Gregorian chants, you had them singing in Latin, people speaking English, going, what? Oh, it's got a nice tone, but I don't know what it says. But in Reformation, you have hymns. It may be psalms, it may be some other form. A mighty fortress is our God based on a psalm. But you have music brought back to the people. We sing to one another. I don't know if you ever thought of that, but think about it. Not only that, we sing to God. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. With your heart. I'm reminded of the statement by uh, R.C. Sproul some years ago. He wrote, The pursuit of the knowledge of God is insufficient. It must not serve as an end in itself. In other words, you don't want to just get information to have information. So what? What's that mean? I can tell you the five points. So what? Or I know the five solos. So what? That in and of itself is insufficient. That's not, that's not the goal. But a means, but as a means to an end. Knowledge is a means to an end. What's the end? Exalting God. Edifying believers, but exalting God in this particular focus at Rome. The goal is to inflame the heart. Wrote Sproul. The mind is to serve as a feeding trough for the soul. Now here's a, here's a big difference between what Paul said and what they did as pagans and what they are now engaging in as Christians, as pagans, it was to let go and don't worry about that. Don't think about that. Just bury that and become put yourself in a stupor influenced by some uh, mind-altering substance just as you're led as opposed to let your heart be inflamed by the knowledge of God even as we were as as Pastor John read Psalm 22, wasn't your heart enriched and inflamed by that? Did you not want to cry out, Hallelujah! What a Savior! That enriches the heart. And that comes out knowledge. And that comes out in worship. We sing to God. We make melody to glorify God. And we sing from the heart. It's not mechanical. So now very quickly, let me mention a couple of other items. So what is music that exalts God and edifies us? Well, if we were together, all the hymn books and hymns that had ever been written, I suppose we could say what was said about the words of Jesus. I don't know if the world would contain them all. Because I've got a shelf full of different hymn books. And that's just a, a little bit. We have two in our seats. And then sometime we'll pull one in from somewhere else. Because it says more directly what we want said. Well, music that edifies and exalts must communicate sound theology. Yes, instrumentation, melody, timing are important, but words are supreme. And music can be steeped in bad theology. And some of the hymns you sing can be steeped in bad theology. And they can be steeped in good theology. Let me give you an example of this. And I must do this, I know, quickly. But how many of you here know the hymn, The Ninety and Nine? 
Let me see your hands if you know that hymn. Some of you do. Okay. According to the, that hymn, and we sing it all the time. I love singing. It's got great music. It's very dramatic music. It's moving music. But, but according to that hymn, where were the 99 left? Anybody? They were left in the wilderness. This, this, this comes from Luke 15. Turn your Bibles to Luke 15. That's where the hymn comes from. Just show you bad theology in a hymn. This is, I, could, I could have picked a bunch of other ones, but I just picked this one. It's because it's one I know and used to sing all the time. But in Luke 15, um, where are the 99 left? In the hymn, they are safely tucked away in the fold. Let me read you the words. There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. But one was out on a hill far away, far off from the gates of gold. Well, sing it, don't you? Because the music's so pretty. But in Luke 15, that's not so. In Luke 15, the ninety and nine are in the wilderness. And the whole point of, the, of what Christ... Look at Luke 15. I'm not there, but look at Luke 15. Um... Look, look at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So He told them this parable. Who's He addressing the parable to? Those that are grumbling because this man is eating with sinners. And who do they represent in the parable? The ninety and nine. Look at the parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep? And then we hear sheep, we go, oh, they've got to be children of God. They're sheep. Well, everywhere in the Bible talks about a sheep doesn't mean it's a safe person. And here it doesn't. They aren't. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country of the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he, gathers, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just as I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now who were those scribes and Pharisees that were looking down their long pointed nose at Jesus for eating with sinners? Self-righteous people. And Jesus said, well, but I'm going after my sheep. And you other 99 are out there on your own. Hen's got it just backwards. You go, does that matter? I go, yeah, it matters. You better believe it matters. So we want music that communicates sound theology. We want music that edifies. And the edifying, it's got got to be understandable. And I know that's part of my problem is I can't hear well. I understand that. One day I'm going to get hearing aids. I'll probably be surprised what you're telling me. But anyhow, <laughs> that's right. But if I'm not looking at the words and singing the words, I have a hard time understanding the words if I'm just being sung at. It needs to be understandable if it's edifying. Mm-hmm. We're speaking to one another 
The songs should be singable. We should focus on the words. It shouldn't be overpowered and think, the Lord, it's not the case here. It shouldn't be overpowered by music. And I would love to have, I don't know how many instruments, but it, I, love, I love instrumentation. But music is an accompaniment. The worship is the heart. These words, edifying words before one another and exalting of God. And for it to exalt God, well, it must be appropriate for worship. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's kind of like the justice years ago about what is pornography. Well, you know it when you see it. Well, you know it when you hear it. I don't, I'm not going to go into all what's appropriate for worship, but theology must be right. And I like the way that was uh, uh, Al Martin said uh, years ago, uh, speaking about worship, he said it's a joyful solemnity. You think, man, those are opposite words, but that's, that's a very apt description. It's a joyful solemnity. There's reverence. Reverence and joy. Well, I'm, I'm going to get to verse 20, 21. I'm going to leave it there for Pastor John to pick up. I'll just give you this introduction for his next, next part he picks up on. Why does Paul introduce submitting in verse 21? I mean, he's talking about worship and singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's kind of like, do not be drunk. You go, where did that one come from? And here he says, submitting. You go, why? Why is he bringing this up? Well, it is a hinge verse. We are transitioning. Okay. So as any good writer or speaker, he is making that transitional phrase. But then you look at the phrase, and Paul says that we are to... Give thanks always and for everything. And you go, is he being hyperbolic? Is he, is he exaggerating on purpose to make a point? Is he really mean that you should be thankful all the time for everything? Hmm. Well, what does that require? What does that require? Yeah, it does. It, it requires belief in a sovereign, loving, accessible God. It requires trust that God really does care and that God really is working all things together for good for His people. Not the world in general, but for His people. And it requires submission. It requires submission to the will of God in all things. So I just got a terrible diagnosis, let's say. Now, how am I going to respond? God, this apparently is your will now. I don't like it. I don't want it. I'm going to pray for it to be taken from me. But Lord, your will be done. That requires submission. What does corporate worship require? It requires a certain amount of submission to one another. I'm not always here because I always feel like it. Sometimes I don't feel like it. And I'm not against, don't misunderstand me, I'm not against families going and taking time off and vacations and things. I, no, you know me better than that, I hope. But I don't just think about me. What can I get? But I think about you. 
And you should be thinking about your brother and sister by you. Because we're to be edifying one another in all of our worship. And we are to be exalting God together in our worship. I'll leave you with these words of Isaac Watts. We sang it. Come we that love the Lord. Let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord and thus surround the throne. Be together as a family around the very throne of God. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. Boy, he's really sticking it in there, isn't he? Let those refuse to sing who don't know God. But children of the heavenly King may speak their joys abroad. And may it so be that we so worship God together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this portion of it. We pray that You would make it live in our minds and our hearts. And when we gather ourselves as Emmanuel Baptist Church to worship, we pray, Lord, that these thoughts will resonate in heart and mind. That we want to build each other up in the most holy faith. And Lord, how we need building up. The world and all around us beats us up. Leaves us disappointed, sometimes in despair. But Lord, help us to know that we can gather with our family in Christ. And there we can be built up. We can be strengthened for the life that we live, for the battles that we engage in, for the battle that we all are engaged in. And Lord, we can together in a wonderful spiritual harmony and unison worship You and exalt You from our hearts. And Lord, that is such a wonderful building up of saints, such a wonderful testimony to any who might come who are not of the faith, who are not in the family, who do not know Christ. So Lord, help us to live and help us to worship. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Closing hymn is hymn number 355. Again, ask those that are able to stand as we sing, Christ is made the sure foundation. <laughs>